Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stephen Harvey. Today, I'm talking to the wonderful Nick Hill about his development of his successful coaching cultures through the utilization of effective pedagogies and practices. Nick and I, I always try and tell a bit of a funny story about how we met, but I guess ours was a little bit more boring. We connected through Twitter and social media, and we probably spoke to each other on and off through social media and Skype and things like that for about three or four, maybe even five years. And we finally got to meet each other for the first time last year, as I say, about three, four or five years into our first meeting. So that was awesome. So Nick, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? Good, yes. Just um, plodding along with the day, as you probably are. So how is life treating you with your new position? Yeah, very well, actually. Yeah, really enjoying the challenge and being in a different country and a different culture. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about your experiences in your what I'm framing is your positive pedagogy journey. Some people and yourself might call it more along the lines of athlete-centered coaching. So we'll get cracking in terms of the questions and we'll see where we get to from there. So the first question, like I said on the last one, was a blind date question. So what's your name and where do you come from? Well, my name is Nicholas Hill. I'm originally from a small village of around two to 3,000 people called uh, Long Buckby, just outside Northampton in England. All right. And what makes you someone our listeners might want to hear from? That's a great question. Quite a tough question, really. And I, I think I'll answer it with three different themes, really. The, the coaching journey that I've been on and continue to be on. The mentors I've learned from. And then so many environments that I've been inside and fortunate enough to experience. Okay, sounds good. Well, we'll look forward to hearing a little bit more about that as we get into your background and your experiences. First of all, we play this little fun game. It's like my little signature tune here. So I've got 10 questions, binary dichotomous questions, and you can respond and listeners can get a bit of an understanding of you as a person from these, I'm sure. So the first one is dog or cat? Dog. I'd probably say dog too. Um, Netflix or YouTube? Ooh, depends. Netflix. Phone call or text? Both. Toast or eggs? Toast. Cardio or weights? Weights. Facebook or Twitter? Uh, both personal Facebook, professional Twitter. All right, we'll let you off for that one. Ice cream or corn or snow corn? Cone. They're both cones. Which one? Ice cream? Ice cream, then, yeah. yeah. Mobile or console games? Console games. PlayStation. And while you're walking, do you want music or podcasts? Podcast. Right. 
I'll, I'll just say my wife. Is that easier? I'll, I'll walk with my wife. Anyway, iOS or Android? iOS. All right. So we've all been bought into the Apple culture. There you go. So, okay. So let's crack on with some of the more formal questions, I guess. So let's explore how you got into coaching and say a little bit about your development as a coach. I guess I got into coaching because of my school teachers I had. Uh, I had guys in, you know, they were inverted commas, professional rugby players at the time back in the early 90s. A guy called John Olver and Harry Burgess and Clinton's uh, John Wayne England and I kind of, they inspired me and were great role, role models to me and I kind of said to myself, I want to be like those guys. So that was the first steps, you know, I knew what I wanted to do when I was like 11, 12 years old. Um, then from high school, I went to Loughborough University and studied chemistry, physical education and sports science, whilst also playing professional rugby at the Northampton Saints. Um, and during that time, I'd go back to my old high school and coach every Wednesday afternoon. So that was really my first dip into actual physical coaching. And then after Loughborough, I went to St. Luke's College, Exeter University, and studied the PGC in secondary physical education. Uh, and again, while playing rugby at the University in Exeter Chiefs. So, you know, those experiences at Loughborough and Exeter laid great foundations for the future and kind of set me on the path of teaching and coaching. So, for those listeners who don't know who are non UK, I'm a I'm a Loughborough graduate too, and I do know some of the inspiring things that happened to me at Loughborough, having a teaching degree from there, and also my master's degree from there too. So, what was it about Loughborough and Exeter that was inspiring for you? It's a great question because it's only really now when you look back of what you're to go through, you actually really, truly appreciate it. You know, at the time, the guys like Rod Thorpe, Len Ormond and, and David Bunker, they were the professors and the lecturers at the time. And, you know, as a naive 18, 19 year old guy, you don't really know who they were. Um, and now looking back, you know, they're the founders of, you know, in essence, the kind of the way well, I teach and coach and, and we do. And, it's so you kind of have that solid foundation of really good theory and then practical application that you know when we did our practicals um yeah so that's just an example there really of you know how lucky and fortunate i was to go through that time with those people passing their knowledge and experience on mm. and then exeter has a good background too so what were some of the people or whatever you came across there yeah it was a Another great learning curve of, you know, the first semester we're at, at on campus, you know, covering all the pedagogy aspects to, you know, the, the teaching profession. And we covered lots of different areas. I remember doing a dance unit for eight weeks. Uh, we did a swimming unit for eight weeks. We did educational gymnastics for, for eight weeks. So, you know, true phys physical education and to again, be passed on knowledge by these experts. So then in the, the second semester, we're going to one high school and we're able to apply what we're learning, you know, and make lots of mistakes and teach how you thought you should teach. Um, 
And then you go into another school and again, you get mentored by another team of teachers. And again, you can try things, but the, you put through the process of planning a lesson, you then do it. And then the constant reflection and review afterwards, um, you know, I picked up those skills during that time. Mm. Yeah, I think there is a big thing to be said. I know people like Vern Gambetta and, and whatnot, and you hear stories of a lot of really good co coaches having a teaching background. I think there's some soccer coaches like what Louis Van Hall has a teaching background and things like that. So it really does give you a bit of a foundation for what you do moving forward as a coach. Um, so tell us a little bit about your philosophy with some of the experiences you've probably spoken to that a little bit. Yeah, it's, a lot of my philosophy is based on what I went through as an athlete and a, and a player. Um, and then the wider reading and knowledge that I've gained over the years and the connections and learning from, you know, the numerous mentors that I've had, you know, in particular, Brian Ashton, who's former England head coach that helped England win the World Cup and then took them to the 2007 World Cup final. Um, you know, being coached by him as a 19-year-old guy and then going through my journey, learning from him and then him becoming my mentor. And, you know, he's one of the innovative and renowned, you know, most renowned rugby coaches of all time. With a games-based coaching approach. So I can coach him to apply his principles and knowledge. Um, and then to coach alongside him when he invited me to be part of his, you know, academy for a, a summer. Um, you know, that has shaped me how my philosophy of, you know, it's a holistic approach. Um, it's about the all-round person, player, athlete, whichever context we're in. You know, within a, you talked about athlete-centered um, environment, you know, and then, you know, using the principles of what people now call tactical periodization, but in our, you know, we've been doing it for a long time in the teaching world. You know, people have just put this name on it now um, through purposeful and deliberate practices. So that's my philosophy and it's based on my experiences as a player. Um, I played all the positions going through the age groups. Um, you know, I'm a PE teacher, I'm a rugby coach and I'm an athletic development coach. So all those three strands help shape why I believe in a holistic approach. Yeah, and um, again, I think it's interesting because that kind of holistic perspective, you might not be a perfect expert in all these four areas, but being able to draw back on your experiences from, like you say, seeing things from different positions on the rugby field when you played in those different positions certainly helps you as a coach. They say that goalkeepers are the best coaches because they're, grow up learning to see everything from the back of the field but I don't know if that's true <laughs> um, so how do you go about establishing a culture within an environment when you go there you're probably like me you've been to a few different places and had various different experiences and some places you have to get culture going quicker and some you've got a little bit more time so talk us through a few key things that you would do to establish a team culture? Yes, yeah, certainly. And again, with having lived, taught and coached in different countries around the world, you know, most of my life in England and then I spent four years in Chile and, and now I'm in the USA, it, experiencing those actual living different cultures then helps to establish then a team culture because every team's different, every context is different. 
um, players have gone through a different journey. Um, there's different expectations in different environments. And again, that's helped me kind of create a process whereby it starts with creating a vision, which has a clear direction and destination. And, you know, so everyone knows where they're going. You know, it has to be inspiring so that, you know, in essence, you're doing something bigger than oneself. Um, and it's having different tools so that helps do that inspiration. Um, and one thing I find very useful is creating some form of motivational video um, that curates and develops emotions within the players and linking things back to history. You know, so how old is the school? How long has the team been in existence? Um, finding old photos, uh, old video clips and things, but then bringing it to life with photos of the current team and them in action. Um, so they, sowing those seeds, I think, is, is crucial in establishing a, a team culture. Yep. Um, so what about some things more about the learning environment and some things you kind of encourage in that learning environment when you go out on the field and how that connects back to the, the team culture? So what are some practices you use out on the field to maintain that culture that you've come up with and designed with the players? Yeah, sure. It's... In essence, it's it's games for understanding, um, it's game sense, it's, I use the term, conditioning games. Um, and that forms the basis because obviously in a rugby context, you know, it's an invasion game um, based on principles of play. So it's about setting up, you know, that game, get it, get it up and running after the warm-up. Um, so I'll start with the hole. Um, Again, stick some around it, which then allows the players to make decisions for themselves and actually take ownership of that learning environment because you're posing that that problem, that scenario that they have to find solutions to to execute. Um, yeah, so it's allow them to play for I don't know five to ten minutes, um, get them up and running, get them up to speed, get everyone on the same page, and after that, then. Having a kind of a timeout, a two-minute question and answer, or a player-led huddle, they you know they're reflecting on what's happened. Um, but all along, it's kind of guided discovery. Whether, as I say, whether you stick some conditions on a game, so I don't know, you make half the team run back to a try line, which obviously naturally creates more space, and therefore the guys run through that space in, in terms of a rugby context. Um, if I apply it to kind of a physical education lesson, so like a swimming lesson. Again, the hole is obviously you do the full stroke, um, then break it down into the part where, for instance, you could put a leg float between their legs and you're focusing on their arms technique. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would put them back into a full length. Um, another kind of important aspect to this positive pedagogy is kind of the sense of feel. So, again, put the leg float between the legs, you're doing breaststroke, say, and you ask them to do a width with their fingers open and their fingers closed. Uh, so again, getting them to try different things and they figure things out for themselves. So that's yeah. some of the ways that I manipulate the learning experience in different contexts. And so how, if you've worked in environments that are more, let's put quotation marks around, 
high performance and those that are more developmental, let's say. How has this changed? And so, for example, is it that you do do more kind of physical conditioning on some days or are all is, is games used on a daily basis as a form of practice? Yeah, so a lot of the, for example, it's Tuesday, Thursday evening training. Both sessions, most of it, you know, 75% is games-based, um, depending on what area you want to develop. So if it is the conditioning aspect, um, when there's turnovers, I'd kick the ball 40, 50 yards behind them. So they have to run back, get the ball, and then counterattack. So again, you're working on acceleration, sprinting, lots of high-end high, high running. Um, if you wanted to work on more strength power, change your direction stuff, then I'll just put them in a smaller box, they a 10 yard box, you know, mm. and that then brings in the physical aspect of contact as well um, and force, force application. So manipulating the area of the field, as an example, you can work on different things at different times, or you do a 10 minute game within a small area and then you go back into a, a bigger area, which is more like the real game. So again, it just depends what aspect of the physical component you want to work on mm. so when you're kind of moving and changing between these different activities a term that we would say is called interleaving we would probably say um from a sort of learning perspective how do you use questioning within that yeah sure uh, so Generally, I kind of have a rule in the back of my head of like five to ten minutes to allow them to play and experience the game that they're playing. Um, then it's about a two-minute gap, more or less, between one to two minutes of you know that questioning approach, where depending on the age, level, ability, experience of the, the pupils or the players, you know, if it's younger people, it's more guided discovery from the teacher and the coach. You know, and I'll go through a process, okay, what are we working well? Have a discussion. Then, like, what are we not doing so well? So, again, they're reflecting amongst themselves. And then what I find with the more mature athletes and players, they then start debating about things. Hmm. And then the last question is kind of, okay, how are we going to improve this? Um, and throughout that process, again, you would follow up questions, open-ended questions with how, where, why, you know, to add context and you know get into deep thinking rather than just giving an option of yes or no or you know what's a better way to do things you know so you're not actually steering them to an exact point but you're guiding them based on what their their answers are saying because at the end of the day they're the ones playing the games okay um when you're watching in that five or ten minutes talk to us about what you're doing in that five or ten minutes you know so you set this game up and yeah. you're playing what what's going on in your brain do you have again a series of things that you're thinking about do you have a noticing card that's written in front of you to point you to certain things how does that work i'm, I'm kind of doing two things simultaneously uh, one is basically being the referee of the game so whatever obviously the laws of the game are apply but also what extra rules we put on whatever constraints we put on i referee those and if they if they don't do them i would award a penalty so again i'm not telling them for example 
to be off, the offside line technically is the back foot of the ruck, which is where there's lots of guys on the floor and people in contact. And then the rest of the defensive line uh, are literally on the last foot. I'd say you have to be back five metres. So I'm observing, are they paying attention to that condition or are they just being what they've always done? And so then I would just blow the whistle and do the signal for offside. I don't say anything else. And then I find that mm -hmm. the team then talks to themselves about they need to get onside. So one aspect is being a referee. The other then I'm thinking, okay, how are the right rules in this game? So are they actually achieving what I want them to achieve? Um, for example, is it running hard and fast through the spaces or is it getting it wide to the spaces? You know, is the, is the field wide enough? Um, are there too many defenders in the line? So I maybe need to put two extra defenders into the breakdown. So naturally there's more space for the, the outcome to be achieved. So it's those two things. Not at the same, same time. So then after a two I then ask the guys, do you want to change any rules or anything to work on what they're saying? But then I might then add in these extra additions or take away things to facilitate them achieving kind of the intended outcomes without actually physically verbalizing and telling them what to do. They just naturally figure it out for themselves because of the scenario they're facing. So I'm going to throw this in. I don't really like to talk too much in these podcasts because we've got guests on, but Steve Mitchell, a game or tactical games model guy who came up with the tactical games model. He says four questions. Is it safe? This is when you're watching the game, when you set it up, is it organized? Do I need to make modifications for an individual? And do I need to make modifications for a group? So you've just kind of simplified those last two for your, or yeah. you do the last two, but, we also want to know if it's safe and organized and that would depend as, as well. But if you put a constraint on a game where it looks like it's getting a bit unsafe and you haven't had, um, say you got a game the next day and it's overly, con if there's too much contact, you obviously want to pull back on that contact. You're going to have to change the constraints, right? Yeah, sure. If, if they get kind of carried away as well, um, yeah, you just hold back, okay, it's now a wrap rather than a, a full tackle. Um, or, you know, if it's the day before a game, it's going to be a touch, you know, so that, you know, they don't get injured or, you know, they're not wasting energy when they've got a game mm -hmm. coming up. And then the other thing, just to build on what you were saying, was it, there's some argument about not changing too many variables at one time. So you said something about, you'll ask them what rules they want to change and why. And then you might throw in something too. So how do you get that balance of not changing too many things at one at one time? Sure, it's hence why the very first game is a very simple, basic get the game up and running, get it flowing. So the very first five minute set might not actually be working on the specifics of what we want to work on. So you just get that basic game up and running and that's when the second third sets that's when you then start to tweak things and you know I, I agree that you only need to tweak one or two things because there's then too much to remember for the players and then it's like really gets too complex or it's too messy you know we want it to be messy but not overly messy because then they, they don't see the point of what they're then doing so they can't comprehend okay what's this about and then mm -hmm. they'll get frustrated they don't 
they won't they won't feel that you know they're getting competent and confident of what they're doing. So yeah, so it's 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 definitely a tricky balance, and it's kind of being in the moment and having a feel for you know is this game flowing? Is there too much stop start? You know, I talked about me myself being a referee. Am I giving too many penalties away, or am I doing too many turnovers because they're not you know there's too many rules to remember? So yeah, it's. Mm. It's definitely a balancing act and in essence it's a process. It's going to take time to get to the more complex things. Mm. But certainly don't jump into the complex stuff because it, it, does, it, it, it takes longer and then it, you're going to have to go back a couple of steps to then move forward. Yeah, because I, I think if you make too many things and make games too complex and there's a lot of things going on, you're right. The players end up feeling that things are manufactured in, in such a way that you lose the purpose of the game-based activity that you've designed. Uh, so the session's kind of going, you've stood and you've done your observation, you've brought them in, you've done a bit of Q&A, set maybe a, you know, a little bit of an extra challenge, you've sent them back out. So how does that process of inquiry keep going throughout the session? Because of the the rules, the constraints that are in the game, there's constant problems to solve or questions to answer in in what they're seeing in front of them. Um, and again, you, you'll give them different scenarios. So one might be the defence stay on one side of the rook, so therefore there's a massive space on the right, and the players then should see there's this big space on the other side, so therefore they attack that way. Uh, um, and as they get more experienced or they pick it up really quickly, you then say, okay, two defenders are now on that side. So it's a bit more realistic to the real game. And obviously it's a little bit more challenged to have two guys rather than no guys. Um, and that constantly evolves. You know, Sometimes I'd have the defence team in half of them in red bibs and half in green bibs. The green bibs do the tackle, all the red guys run back. Now, you talked about adapting to the actual individuals. For example, slower, bigger guys, I'd tell them to run 20 yards back. The fit, fast guys, I'd tell them to run 40 yards back. So you can manipulate individually as well. But, so that different distances creates different timings, different scenarios, because again, in real games, you know, it is disorganized, it is chaos, and defenders do different things. You know, sometimes a guy will rush up, sometimes guys just stand still. So you're constantly posing them scenarios and, and, and questions to answer through physical action. And how much mistakes do you tolerate before you maybe want to amend or adapt a game a lot of people think well the coach is there to control everything and you've got all these manipulations and from your conversation your mind's racing at a thousand miles an hour but for some of the coaches listening to the podcast they might be trying to be more considered or they might be going through a process where they're learning more about the game themselves and adopting this kind of more game-based approach so they will want to take it a little bit slower. So what what type of um, mistakes do you tolerate before you end up jumping in and changing things? 
I tolerate lots and lots of mistakes, uh, which is it's linking to that empowering approach, the player-centered approach, and basically them making mistakes, they think critically themselves. Um, I don't highlight it. Um, the fact that they are making mistakes means they're trying things, which means then they're pushing the boundaries, they're hopefully then progressing and developing. And to kind of not emphasize those, those mistakes, I have a second ball in my hand or a third, you know, two or three balls in my hand, and I'll either chuck it to the opposition. So that guy that just made a mistake has to switch from attack to defense instantly. So in essence, he forgets about the mistake straight away. Mm. Um, I might, if say if we're working on a tactical thing, they're not quite doing the tactical thing as a team, I'd chuck the ball behind that same attacking team so they get another go in quick succession. Mm. Um, or again, I would pause a game, I might do a, a quick Q&A, and then I'll just throw the ball back to that same player. So he has then a second rep instantly, and then I would tweak the, the defence to actually then that specific player would achieve the skill or the tactic or the move. So I have three different ways of how I just move to the next thing straight away because one of my things is, you know, I have a thing of like next job, focus on the next thing, mm-hmm. you know, because the game doesn't stop for you. Um, so doing it in training, it then becomes natural. Um so then when you get to the real game, you know, that they're used to being under pressure, they're used to making mistakes and not dwelling on them and focus on the next, the next process, the next job. So those three things. And the key is having extra balls on you. So again, if, say, if you know, I was teaching hockey, I'd have four or five hockey balls in my pockets mm-hmm. and just roll them on the floor or different directions and stuff. So. Yeah, I've got, when I work with youth coaches, I always say, when the kids are playing small-sided games, just say, carry a few soccer balls, uh, put one in each hand yeah. on each arm and then you just because kids run out of the area and they're all off and yeah. I just say oh just throw another one in and then you yeah. go collect that one and then the kids start playing another one or another, you know, another thing you know if they drop the ball and they pick it up I just say play on you know you just carry on you know if it's a forward pass you know I don't blow it up it's yeah fine just you know they're trying things they're stretching themselves so yeah um, so one question and sort of goes back to the inquiry is again another thing is how do we work with then individual players within this kind of team-based environment how do we get individual players focused on responding to particular questions and things like that so you give some examples about how you might do that through throwing a ball at them and that kind of thing but do you take players out and have one-on-one conversations? Where are you positioned when the game's going on? That kind of thing. Yeah, I, in essence, I'm moving around the field all the time in different directions, looking from different angles. And if a kid does something really well, either straight away or in the next few seconds, I'll give him a fist pump or a high five and say, well done. Um, if you know they make a mistake further down the line, I'll just walk towards his area. And I say, don't worry, man, just crack on, try it again, you know, keep working at it um, Like a, in terms of encouragement aspects. Mm-hmm. If it's more technical things, I might pose some questions to facilitate that aspect. So the game continues and, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd do 30 seconds, say, of a quick Q&A between ourselves and get them to reflect in the moment. Or sometimes you just need to quickly show them something. Um, so it just depends on the context mm-hmm. of, what's just happened, you know, 
age and ability of the player. Um, but I, I do use different things at different times. It just depends. Um, I mean, it, to me, listening, and I'm probably biased, we know each other and whatever, things sound very fluid. And I was having a conversation on another podcast with somebody the other day, or in another context, sorry, and we were talking about this kind of notion of different forms of game-based approaches that are out there in the literature of forms of positive pedagogy. And this notion of fluidity, I think, is something that is a bit of a challenge for a coach because you've got to let things go. You've got to let mistakes go. Um, But that's what some coaches like about this more game sense kind of idea rather than a more prescriptive version of a game-based coaching where it might be you play a game, then you do a drill, then you play a game, session's done and everyone goes home. So the the more prescriptive one might be for someone who's more of a novice, whereas a more fluid type of game sense approach, which it sounds like you're doing, is maybe for someone who has built up their repertoire over a period of time. Yeah, definitely experience over time definitely helps. You know, when I first went back to my old school in my first steps of coaching, you know, how I coached then was more how I was coached as a kid. And, you know, 20 years later now, how I am coaching is completely different to how I started this journey. And I think that's the key here. It's a process. It's a long process. You know, different things along the way can accelerate your learning. But finding your way to do this is crucial. Um because you need to be confident and competent, you know, that you know what you're doing. So therefore you come across the right way to the players and they buy into it and, you know, they know what you're doing. Um, yeah. And it's it, the more inexperienced game space coaches, I would essence the whole hour would be different games and I'll split those into segments. And so you as a coach get used to trying different types of scenarios for example, one set of five minutes is playing up and down the pitch, so it's a narrow pitch. The next five minutes, you turn 90 degrees and you play across the whole width of the pitch. So in rugby context, that's 100 metres wide. Um, it just depends on, again, the age, the ability, but in essence, it's a wide and narrow pitch or a long and thin pitch. You know, that's mm-hmm. Just trying little things like that. Well, then you then find what works in those scenarios. So if I wanted to work on passing, I would have a really wide pitch. So the players spread out further, it forces them to pass. You know, if I want them to work on running hard and fast, I'd have a narrow pitch. You know, they've got to force their way through the spaces. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a learning process. Try things. You know, it's, it is about letting go. You know, it is about let the guys make mistakes, try things. The key is the reflection process afterwards. So every training session I plan, I want to do these things. I put it on a back of a small piece of paper that goes in my pocket. As I go along with the flow, I'm annotating that piece of paper, what physically actually happened or what I then evolved and developed and progressed to. And then I, I then review the session. And one of the things I do do, I go pro all my coaching sessions. So during the week I look back and, you know, again, reflect on my communications I'm doing with the players. Um, seeing what other players picking up on things. Um, so that's all part of my plan, do and review process, which I learned back at Exeter University when I was learning to be a teacher. Mm. Um, 
you seem to as well have to wear many hats in your roles that you've had because you said at the outset athletic development coach pedagogue expert psychology um tactics techniques so this way of coaching is something that can help you mold that into kind of a holistic way of coaching where you might not have a fitness coach alongside you to sort of drive that part of what you're doing with training yeah definitely and you know i pride myself on being a generalist and being a teacher coach in rugby and athletic development those three strands it definitely has given me the tools and the skills to do that and you know start of the session it's athletic development warm-up which then evolves into robust running which then goes straight into a game which you can do at full speed um contact depending you know if i've stuck some wrestling into the warm-up then we can go into a contact game if if the plan is not to do that then it's you know it's a speed game um and you know a game-based coaching the, the guys are non-stop you know you can do more actually in less time um they you know the q and a aspect is their active rest mm. you know so they're still meant that you're working on the mental aspect while their body's recovering then you can go and do the physical you know and it's it's all the things all the time and it's drip feeding all the, the four strands you know throughout every training session so tuesday session builds into thursday session and then the game builds on top of those two things you know and one of the things i've learned through the game network and the athletic development aspect it's You've got to prepare the team for the most intense period of time in the game. Now that might only last for a 30 seconds, but in the, you know, in the whole length of a game, lots of energy being expended and concentration and situation in the game and the score lines. You know, so my deliberate practices are just focusing on you know the speed of the game. You know, training above that speed. So when they play in physical matches, it's, it seems easier. And you then go into states of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's those different strands of my own personal experience. And then now trying this, you know, a session is anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. And every box is ticked and, you know, build on it week to week. All of a sudden, by the end of the season, you've got a completely tran- transformed team. Mm. Um. So talk to us a little bit, because we've talked about implementation of this approach in a lot of depth. So what kind of process do you start out with, with giving athletes ownership? I listened to a Mike Krzyzewski thing, and he said he hates the term buy-in. And he said, well, he didn't say hate, but he said he doesn't like the term buy-in, but he likes the term ownership in coaching because he wants players to own their environment, their behaviours, etc so talk to us about how you maybe go about doing that so it might be how the field and what goes on there relates to the culture that you're trying to embed sure so it's in essence ways to kind of empower the players then within your own within training sessions Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and behind the scenes and it's kind of based on what I kind of define what athlete-centered coaching is, and it's a combination of Lynn Kidman's definition of, you know, you do create and develop the culture. You do use a games-based approach and then obviously you use questioning, which we've covered a lot of already so far in the podcast. And then for me, there's this layer underneath and it's 
in essence, it's from self-determination theory where, you know, you need to provide choice and autonomy so they can make decisions for themselves. You know, you curate a learning environment where they feel competent, so they're gaining confidence that they're getting successful at this. And then you nurture opportunities where they feel connected to their fellow teammates. So those two core things kind of then lay the foundation to then empowering these players to take ownership of their learning, of their development, of their team. You know, so again, we set up a game. I might give a 30-second tactical timeout for the team to then talk about, okay, how are we then going to play this game? So they're, they're in this tight huddle. They're interacting. They're engaging. They're saying, right, we're going to do this, this, and this. Um, the two-minute player-led Q&A huddles in between two sets of games. Again, I'd say, Stephen, right, can you ask this question? Johnny, can you ask that question? And those two players would facilitate those questions. And then I'd just say, Stephen, make sure you're the guy that speaks last. Because quite ha- what often happens is you'd straight away say X, Y, Z. Mm. Because of the, you know, say you're the, you're the leader of the team, the personality of the team, you want to get everyone engaged. So I'd ask you to, okay, ask uh, David, because we know he's one of the quieter guys, you know, asking the first easier question. Um, it's what else the you know we talked about that making mistake aspect just chuck a second ball you know they're they're figuring things out for themselves um so what um and so what challenges have you found with using this approach the broad kind of loose framework the fluid framework that that you've described Biggest challenge, I would say, it takes time. It's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, that time can be anywhere from one to six to three, four years. It, it, it depends on the situation and the environment you're in. You know, I've had those different things occur to me in my different environments, whether it's in school with you know young kids to you know the first fifteen of the school to coaching adults in, you know, the Chilean Premier Division um, with old boys or, you know, here in America with, with college-age kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it depends on that context. But certainly, have the players been exposed to this type of coaching and teaching before, um, which is related then to the type of mindset they have? Are they open-minded to try new things or experience new things? Um, they're definitely the more challenging type of athletes than pupils, you know. Um, do the other coaches that say you're in a team of coaches, you know, what's the philosophy of the other coaching that's brought up into in, into this way of coaching? You know, are they open to reading, you know, research articles or listening to podcasts like this? Um, in different contexts of being, you know, the parents. You know, they're probably the biggest challenge within the school setting or, you know, club setting with, you know, younger kids, you know, especially when, you know, if they're within a fixed mindset culture and or in an environment where the only emphasis is winning matches, you know, Mm. um, they bring its challenges, you know, kind of a a different set of challenges as well. Um, And I think with parents, you maybe if you write out your teaching or coaching philosophy, give them a copy, give them some insight into, you know, if it's a young group, the 
benefits and drawbacks of early specialization all the, you know, with, in terms of burnout and things like that the importance of the kind of the, the training and coaching methodology you have where you're trying to use this more fluid open type of training so that children learn to deal with those mistakes or whatever or i mean just adult players too i think that's the good thing about this kind of framework and approach is that it's you can use it in different contexts and and see players grow because you give them that ownership yeah most definitely and I'll, that's that's one of the the great things i've been fortunate to experience and have these really cool results and outcomes of this approach you know i've you know, I've taught kids, five-year-olds, all the way up to adult, 55-year-olds in a club setting, down to, as I say, PE lessons with five-year-olds, taught in high school, taught in university, taught in an adult club. You know, I've done it in Chile and the UK and, and now America. So that, you know, all brings its challenges. And I've seen successes, regardless of level, ability, you know, how much time you train. You know, one time in Chile, I went six hours south of Santiago to a, city called Tamuco went to this rugby club you know very little spoken English and I by that stage I kind of had enough Spanish to coach in Spanish these guys had never been exposed to it and after an hour you know the the, the rate of progress they made in one hour on a wet Tuesday cold dark evening you know in a foreign country different culture different language you know that's been very powerful for me to know that this you know this approach is a is a really good way to go about doing teaching and, and coaching and again I've had eight-year-old kids do some amazing unbelievable skills and you know back in the coaching symposium back in June with, with you guys at Ohio I showed a video of an eight-year-old kid doing an offload and there's one of the world's best players doing the identical so mm-hmm. it creates opportunities for players to really challenge themselves and actually do things you know that anyone can do at any level. So let's talk a little bit about your plans for the future. You can also maybe give a bit of insight to the listeners here about things you've done because you're a person who's always wanting to develop oneself professionally. So what kind of plans do you have to keep doing that and what are your plans for the future? Where can people kind of see you? What conferences are you going to over the next few months? Things like that. Sure. Um, You know, as always, continue to grow and develop as a teacher and a coach. You know, keep reading books from different strands, from different areas. Keep listening to different podcasts. You know, it's great that you've got this one up and running, and I can't wait to see the next the next episodes with the different experts you're going to you're going to get on the show. And you know, listen to the Gamecast, Hammer Media podcasts, a few others. Um, I'm lucky to have access to research articles. I've got a good friend, Xavier Roy, who I met through the Gay Network. He's able to, he works at a university, so he can send me different articles I'm quite intrigued to read. Mm-hmm. Keep communicating with coaches from all around the world at various levels. You know, I love doing that, you know, through Skype. That's how we met. Um, seek out opportunities where I can observe coaches from different sports coach, you know. So, for example, track and field, wrestling, you know, field hockey. You know, so that's how I individually hope to grow and develop and get better. Um, I'm going to be attending Game 12, hosted by Vern Gambetta in June at Rice University in, in Houston. You know, and that's a, it's been an amazing career-defining moment for me to join that network back in 2015. You know, and it's just 
you learn from some of the world's best, you know, the likes of Wade Gilbert, who's, a, you know, one of the most sought after presenters on, you know, creating cultures as an example of the type of people that we're able to learn from. You've invited me back to present at your second global coaching symposium at Ohio University towards the end of June, you know, where again, I'll be sharing my experiences of player-centered coaching with the, the new cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're in a teaching session on applying, you know, teaching games for understanding principles. Um, Professor Richard Light um, of the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, you know, a very good friend and colleague of ours. He's invited me to present at the sixth International Game Sense Conference in Japan at the beginning of November, you know, just after the World Cup. So yeah. that's such an amazing opportunity to, again, to go into another country, another culture and mm-hmm. share my passion for Game Sense coaching in rugby. Um, and then you guys have asked me to contribute to the third of, third edition of your positive pedagogy coaching book so mm-hmm. you know it's lots going on behind the scenes and you know i'm really looking forward to those different different challenges yeah um, good so if people want to get a hold of you maybe start with how they can do that you have a website i think and a twitter handle yeah. which is probably oh sure, yeah um my website is nickhillcoaching.com uh, again, I share lots of my different coaching journeys on there. You know, I love sharing knowledge. That's one reason why I created that website. And then through Twitter, again, that's how we connected. It's at capital N, capital H underscore, capital C coaching underscore. So there's my Twitter handle. Again, message me through there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing this through the internet, you know, Zoom and Skype. You know, happy to, to uh, communicate and, and do things through that way. And then my email address is nickhill at nickhillcoaching.com. You know, so that's different ways that, you know, guys can get in touch. And, yeah, I love talking, teaching, coaching with different coaches from around the world. And, you know, I've been fortunate to learn from, you know, some of the best coaches in various fields. And, you know, I love learning from those guys so that I can be the best I can be for the, the athletes and the pupils and players that I teach and coach. Good stuff. So we'll... Obviously, I want to say thanks for spending some time with us. I, I let this one run a little bit longer because we had so many good things to say in conversation. So that's really good. Um, if it's it's a bit crackly at times, and we apologise because we the connection's not the best either where I am or where you are. But hopefully, you'll stick with it. And obviously, want to say thanks to Nick for spending his time to help us out with the podcast and give us some insights into his journey. If you need to get a hold of Nick, he just left you his information and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of the positive pedagogy for sport coaching podcast next week. Thank you very much.